Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. As we begin today, I'd like you to think about something that is distressing you right now. Is there something that's been a recurring burden on your mind that's been weighing you down? Maybe it's a frustrated longing, a failed application, bearing with singleness when you long to be married, feeling disappointed by a friendship you had hopes for. Maybe it's related to the ongoing uncertainties of the future, figuring out schooling options for your children, not being sure where your career or finances are headed, realizing our world is not going back to normal anytime soon. Today we continue our series on arrow prayers, prayers made in the moment to God, and the one we're looking at today rises out of a moment of acute distress. I believe there's a message for us here about how to handle the troubles that may be on our minds right now. We're going to read about the first and only woman shown in the Bible going into God's presence to pray, and the heart of her arrow prayer are these words, Remember me. Let's read from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This story happens during a dark time in the history of the Israelites. 
They've left Egypt, gone through the wilderness, conquered the promised land, only to have things completely fall apart, cycling from bad to worse, to absolute anarchy and evil. And you can read about this in the book of Judges. It gets super dark by the end of that book, as in seriously disturbing, I would not tell these stories to my children, dark. It is at this point that Hannah comes into the story. Against the backdrop of the generalized distress of her people comes a story about one woman's very personal distress. Verse 2 says, But Hannah had no children. Now, in the ancient Near East, childbearing was the one avenue to fulfillment for a woman for lots of reasons. Children could help you in your business, care for you in your old age. They boosted the economy and ensured the military strength of the country. And while it's easy to judge that society, let's admit that women nowadays face expectations and pressures that can be just as narrow, whether it be to have a certain physical appearance, to get married by a certain time, or to have it all in their career and home life. And for Hannah, I think the longing for a child is also a personal one, which anyone who has struggled with infertility can identify with. Hannah's distress is the distress of anyone who feels like a disappointment in the eyes of their culture, family, or career. It's the distress of anyone who has a deep and unavoidable longing that is continually not being met, who is dealing with the desire deferred. Worse yet, all of this is rubbed in her face. That would have happened a million times a day in small ways. Being the only woman at the market every day, not talking about her kids. Having to live with another wife who had multiple children of both genders. But the worst of it all came once a year at Shiloh. Shiloh was the most important site for worship at that time. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were there. It was located a bit less than 20 miles from where Elkanah lived, and once a year, he would take his family there to worship God. The climax of that time was an animal sacrifice followed by a family feast. Now, you wouldn't eat the meat of your sin or guilt offering, but you were given back a good part of your thanksgiving or peace offering, as described in Leviticus 7. The meat would be portioned to each wife according to the number of children she had, so she could share it with them. And this became both a reminder to Hannah of her barrenness and an opportunity for Penina to provoke her. This moment, which was supposed to be a time of celebration and worship, was for Hannah one of the worst times of the year. Verse 6 says she was grievously irritated, which literally refers to a deep pain of the soul. She was visibly crying. She describes herself in verses 15 and 16 as troubled in spirit, in great anxiety and vexation. And this recurred year after year after year. Is your distress like this? Maybe it makes you feel sad at times when everyone around you seems happy. Maybe it makes you feel left out. Maybe there are triggers or people who provoke you in ways that hurt more than you let on. Maybe it's something that's on your mind every day, an ache that never really goes away. Maybe it's an anxiety that weighs on you until you feel like you can't even function. Hannah's distress was all of these things, and it's from that place that she shoots up an arrow prayer with the words, Remember me. As we continue through this passage, let's look at three things that her words show us about how to deal with distress. First, remember me is Hannah pouring out her suffering to God. Secondly, remember me is Hannah making an ask. 
Thirdly, Remember Me is Hannah realizing she is answered. First, Remember Me is Hannah admitting she feels forgotten and pouring out her suffering to God. To understand the significance of what Hannah does when she prays, we have to see that she has two voices in her life offering her ways to cope with her distress. The first voice is from Panina, Alkana's other wife. This is the voice that holds up external expectations. It's the voice that says, the only way you can cope is by fitting in, by achieving enough, by finding some way to get what you want, or else to become bitter and angry in response. We all hear this voice from our culture, from the media, perhaps from our parents or bosses. Sometimes we hear this voice from ourselves. I remember when I was learning about the different Enneagram types, I began to think one of our children could be a type one, the perfectionist, and this type can have a relentless inner critic. I asked this child, do you actually hear a negative voice going on in your head all the time about what you're doing wrong? They responded, yeah, don't you? I thought everybody did. That definitely helped me understand this child better at the time. But to some degree, all of us can have this inner voice. The voice of Panina saying, you're not good enough. You're not matching up. But there's a second voice here, and it's the voice of Elkanah, Hannah's husband. He says, why do you weep? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Which on one hand is deeply tender and loving, but on the other shows his inability to understand how she really feels about her barrenness, because of course they aren't the same thing at all. This is the voice that offers a substitute, even if it doesn't satisfy your longing in the end. In a way, I think this voice is more dangerous because on the surface, it looks good. It offers immediate gratification. But think about what would have happened if Hannah had listened to this voice. She could have easily idolized her husband, flouted his love before Panina, relied on it to prop up her self-esteem. Yet in the end, all of this would have just suppressed her longing for a child, not really addressed it. And it would have probably led to unhealthy patterns in her marriage and home life. We do this so easily, don't we? We look to a person or an event or a material possession to fix the unmet longings that we have or to cope with the troubles on our minds, but they don't really work in the end. The thing we have to see here is that Hannah does not listen to either of these voices. At this point in the story, she has not said anything at all, and this is significant. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter puts it this way. It is narratively significant that Hannah doesn't answer either voice. And in Hebrew narrative, that means she's not giving in. She's not responding. She's not building her life on either one. Instead, Hannah looks to God. Before her prayer, there are these two really significant words in verse 9. Hannah rose. Now, the author didn't have to say that. It's pretty obvious she would have had to get up from the feast to walk over to the temple. But in Hebrew, this is an idiom, a way of saying she put her foot down. This is her first decisive act. And as we'll see, it's a play on words because resurrection is a theme of this story. Hannah rising to talk to God is completely unprecedented. Back then, it wasn't normal to go before God by yourself. Prayers involved rituals and the mediation of a priest. 
But despite being ordinary and unordained, Hannah steps out of all of the cultural and historical roles of her time by going directly and boldly before God. And these are the first words she says, O Lord of hosts. This is astonishing because no character in scripture has ever used this term to address God prior to this. In some translations, this is Lord Almighty. Literally, in Hebrew, it is Yahweh of armies and hosts. This is a title that claims God's dominion and authority, his infinite resources and power. And three times in her prayer, Hannah calls herself your servant, a term used to describe a female household slave. Relative to God's power, she is but a servant. A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hannah thinks of God as someone powerful. She sees that he is the only one with the power to understand and address her distress. One of the things about suffering is that it's so lonely. You need someone to understand how it feels, yet no one really does. The words remember me amount to an admission that Hannah feels forgotten, unseen, and alone. But part of God's power lies in his power to receive our emotions, to be able to hear them and understand them as no one else on earth can. Hannah names her distress to God. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. Later on in verse 15, she tells Eli, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That phrase pouring out literally means to pour something out of its container into someplace else. The picture is that of a transferal, which involves one's whole being. This is the same word that David uses in Psalm 142 when he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Do you do that? Do you bring your distress into God's presence, believing that he has the power to understand it? Listen, it's never too late. Hannah's distress went on year after year, yet the moment her story turns is the moment she chooses to leave aside the other voices in her life and rise up to seek God. It's the moment she shoots up this arrow prayer in the very middle of her worst feelings. We can do so too. Secondly, remember me is Hannah making an ask. In Hebrew, this word remember means not just a calling to mind, but a positive action on behalf of someone, the start of a major new activity in response to a specific plea. Hannah is saying, don't just see my suffering, do something about it, God, act on my behalf. But there's something really interesting in how Hannah makes this petition. If you will act by giving me a son, she says, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What is going on here? At first glance, this looks like a bargain, a tit for tat. You do this for me, God, and I'll vow to do this for you. But two things argue against that. First of all, If this is a bargain, these have got to be the worst terms of all time. If Hannah had a contract lawyer, there's no way her attorney would have let this go down. What exactly is she vowing here? The Levites were those who served as priests in the temple and didn't have their own land or wealth. A Nazarite was a voluntary Levite. 
someone who was not a Levite by birth, but was given to do Levitical work. To indicate this, they followed certain rules, like not cutting their hair or drinking alcohol, as you can read about in Numbers 6. Usually, this was a temporary volunteer gig, but Hannah vows to dedicate her son for his entire life, which was highly unusual, way more than called for. In fact, what would be the point of having a son if he was to become a lifelong Nazarite? But there's a second reason this was more than a bargain. Look at what happens to Hannah after her prayer. Verse 18, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. If this was a bargain, Hannah wouldn't have had peace until what she bargained for happened, right? The order would have been prayer, pregnancy, then peace. But instead, it was prayer, peace, then pregnancy. How was she able to have peace before knowing if God would answer her prayer? How could the peace have come before the pregnancy? I think the only way this could have happened is if Hannah had released her desire for a child to God. Notice she doesn't suppress the desire. She doesn't abandon her longing. She simply is able to entrust it to God. She is able to release ownership of it. She's saying, God, all my life I've wanted to have a child for me, but now I still want to have a child. I still want to participate in the goodness of that experience, but now I want to do it for you. Therefore, however you answer this prayer is fine with me. Can you say that about whatever it is you're longing for? God, I still want to have a husband or child or dog. God, I still want to find the right job or the right school experience. But however you answer this prayer is fine with me, because these things do not ultimately define me, and neither do I ultimately own them. That is what Hannah is able to see as she pours out her heart before God. She is able to make an ask of God, but to do it while releasing all ownership over the timing, the outcome, and ultimately the child itself. And that's what really boggles the mind, right? I don't know that as a parent, you could read this story and not be completely flabbergasted at Hannah's offer. Yet if I think about it long enough, Hannah at heart sees what parenting is about, doesn't she? She had a few years with her child. I might have 18, but in the end, none of us own our children. In his book on parenting, Paul Tripp points out that whether or not we parent as owners tends to come out practically in how we view four things. First, our identity. Owners define who they are through their children rather than through Jesus. Second, our work. Owners see their work as turning their children into something rather than as being representatives of God who is the only one who can ultimately change their children. Third, success. Owners tend to define success as achieving a specific catalog of horizontal outcomes rather than as being a faithful tool in their children's lives. Lastly, reputation. Owners see their kids as trophies. They are more disappointed by how their kids reflect on them than on whether they've broken God's law. They are less willing to accept the messiness of parenting and give God the glory in it. We could look at these parameters in any area of our lives, our job, our relationships, our possessions. 
What does your conception of identity, work, success, and reputation in these areas say about whether you believe you own these things? Hannah was able to ask, but let go. She was able to nurture, but wean. She was able to see the truth of what John the Baptist says in John 2, 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Our children, our careers, our possessions, our relationships, our bodies are ultimately not things that we own. They are gifts to us from God. And only when we release our right to have them when and how and in what way we want can we discover the peace that Hannah was able to have. So we see that through her prayer, Hannah poured out her feelings to God. She asked for her longings to be met even as she released ownership of it to him. Lastly, remember me is Hannah realizing she is answered and finding in that her place of joy. Verse 29 says, And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel is a compound of the Hebrew words for name, Shem, and God, El, and means the one who is God named. But also in Hebrew, Samuel sounds similar to the verb for ask, which is Sha'al. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, Samuel, the one who is God named, is at the same time the one asked for. The name is a wordplay that joins Hannah's asking with God's answer. God remembered her and Hannah knows it. Gazing at her newborn baby, she knows that more than anything, this baby is God's way of saying, you asked and I remembered. And she names him Samuel, a word that joins her asking with God's answer. Do you see, this is about far more than just a baby. This is about how God has revealed himself to Hannah as the one who sees her pain and answers her longings. She has more joy in that God than she does in her baby. How do we know that? Because she has more joy on the day she gives her son up to God than she ever did before. Let's read some parts of the rest of chapter 1 and a bit into chapter 2. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, in some translations this is three bulls, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And she said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. If you read Leviticus 12, you'll realize the sacrifice Hannah gives here is far more generous than called for. She chose bulls when smaller animals would have sufficed and gave more flour than would have been expected for three bulls. And right after saying she is giving up her son to God, she bursts into a prayer of explosive joy. If you read the rest of it in chapter 2, you'll see that it's all about God and his resurrection work. Nowhere in the song does she really talk about herself, her own merit, or how great it is that she finally got what she wanted. It's all about God. The point to Hannah is not even so much her child as it is the transformative revelation of God's glory and character that she experiences through God's answer to her prayer, Remember Me. And Hannah's song points to the ultimate answer God gives us for our distress. 
At the very end of her song are these words, He, the Lord, will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed in the Hebrew is literally Messiah. Jesus' title, Christ, is the Greek translation of this word. Hannah is the first person to use the Hebrew word Messiah in the Old Testament and the first to compare the Messiah with the king. The mystery is that, at the time she sang this, there was no king in Israel or a prospect of one. The monarchy was not established until two generations later. And yet, Hannah prophetically sings of a Messiah king. One thousand years later, another ordinary woman will sing a song based on Hannah's song, one that we know as the Magnificat. That woman will be Mary, who was at the time pregnant with Jesus. You know, Samuel was probably three to five years old at the time he was weaned. We have a five-year-old, and I can't even begin to imagine giving her up. I don't even really want to go there. I can't imagine how Hannah must have felt traveling the 20 miles to Shiloh that year, holding little Samuel, knowing that's what she had to do. I imagine it was like how Abraham felt on the journey up Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, except he had a reprieve at the end. Hannah didn't. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you realize that he did that for you? Like Hannah, he gave up his only son. That is the way God remembered us. He sent his son into the world to save us from our sin and distress and to give us the promise of a remade world one day that will be free from tears and unmet longings. God remembered Hannah. He remembers us. May we pour out our distress to God, ask him to meet our longings while releasing the results to him, and may he through that reveal himself in a way that gives us the real joy that our hearts long for. May we pray like Hannah, remember me.